Whitley Strieber is an experiencer, researcher, and prolific author. He's most well-known for his controversial best-selling book, Communion, a non-fiction description of his experiences with an apparent non-human intelligence. Another of his books is called The Afterlife Revolution, which details the after-death communications he's exchanged with his wife since she transitioned. As always, we've taken the time to create timestamps, which can be found in the description below. So Whitley, to start us off, could you please give a quick summary recap of your experiences with UFOs and non-human intelligence? Well, uh, yes, I, as a child, I was very interested in flying saucers in the 1950s. I go back pretty far at this point, but that interest died as I grew up and they left the news. They were all over the newspapers. Mm -hmm. in those days but by the 60s they had pretty much been forgotten and i had forgotten all about it and i went through the middle of my life that way and suddenly in december of 1985 i was now in my early 40 just 40s uh i woke up in the middle of the night on the night of december the 26th and to my horror, I was not in my bed. I was in a strange space that looked to me initially like a tent. And uh, there were these large-eyed, very odd-looking sort of insect-like creatures in there with me. It was like being in a side of some kind of an, uh, of an insect nest. And... Um, of course, I thought I was having a nightmare and tried to wake myself up, but I couldn't do it. And I apparently began screaming because I began to hear a voice saying in this very strangely mild, artificial, female-sounding voice, what can we do to help you stop screaming, repeating itself over and over again like a record. And I was, um, nothing would be the answer. <laughs> Then yeah. uh, I was very brutally handled. I, I was uh, given a, an injection in the side of my head, and I was raped it, with a device that caused uh, uh, an erection and an ejaculation, and the ejaculate was collected. And the experience then ended, and I'm not sure of exactly how it ended because by that time I was beyond panic yeah. and I woke up the next morning in a very very uncomfortable and disturbed state I was uh, obviously had been roughed up in the night but I wasn't a person who could believe anything like that could happen. I'd never heard of anything like an alien abduction mm. at all in my life. I hadn't thought about flying saucers since I was about 12. And then they were just a distant fascination in the newspapers. Oh, the father of one friend had been involved in an incident in Texas. I'm from Texas, called the Leveland, Texas UFO incident. And he had described it quite vividly to us. So it was a very real thing as a child. Mm -hmm. but not as an adult. And I hadn't thought about it in years. And the next thing I knew, 
here this was this experience, and I didn't relate it to UFOs or aliens in any way initially. I thought I had been I thought I had been attacked, assaulted, and uh, by someone who had drugged me. And I haven't completely dismissed that idea at all, even now. Right. In fact, I haven't dismissed anything because I don't have any definite proof of anything. I can only tell you what I remember, and that's not even necessarily what happened. But the physical injuries were very real, and after some period of time of ignoring it and trying to deal with the trauma yeah. by... Uh, I wrote a short story called Pain, which is this strange very uncharacteristic sort of sadomasochistic story about an, a particularly unpleasant angel who who burns away the sins of some guy that I had invented it was and it was a I couldn't figure out I, when I was writing it it was it was a relief of some sort creatively yeah. Uh, and my wife read it and said, well, Whitley, it's beautifully written, but it's really not you. It's a strange story. It's published. You can find it here and there, I suppose. And um, then I, during the writing of it, I began to remember this sort of UFO-related thing that had happened, and that kind of comes into the story. But... At that point, I thought I maybe I had gone, I had had a psychotic break. I became very concerned about my mental health. Yeah. And I went to the doctor and I told him what I remembered. And he was the first person to relate it to the whole UFO thing more than the sort of fragmentary thoughts I'd had. And he said, Well, Whitley. It sounds like you're telling me you were taken aboard a flying saucer by little men. And I thought, oh my God, I've gone crazy. And I became very concerned about my wife's future and my son's because I thought if I had had enough, if I, if that was a psychotic break and that happened again and I could never get out of it, I would basically be institutionalized. Yeah. And I began to try to get her to leave me, and we fought. I was experiencing extraordinary trauma, post-traumatic stress disorder, in fact. But yeah. we didn't really know much about that at the time. The doctor put me through an MRI scan. I had uh, uh, a scan for temporal lobe epilepsy, which causes vivid hallucinations, and um, a general... Uh, mental health exam, uh, psychological exam. <laughs> and the result of all of this was that I was perfectly healthy, except for the fact that I was under a great deal of stress. But where was it coming from? Where? Uh, I, I didn't know. And then my at, at, at Christmas, which had been the day before it happened, my brother, who was interested in UFOs and so forth, had given me a book about them, which I hadn't read and I hadn't been very interested in. But now I began to think, maybe this is something real in some way. And so I thought, I, I'm not up on this. I'll read the book. It was called Science and the UFOs. 
he knew I would never read one of what I regarded in those days as the crazier UFO books. So I think he thought, I guess, the word science in the title might tempt me. Yeah. So I read it, and at the end of the book, there was this description of an event that had happened to a man, called, and it was called an alien abduction, and it was really very similar to what happened to me. And I... Uh, I thought to myself, what in the world has, is this real? And it mentioned a researcher called Bud Hopkins mm -hmm. in the book. It turned out he lived just a few blocks from us in Manhattan. Oh, really? Wow. And so we went to see him, and he was a very kind man. And I was introduced to other people who had had the experience. And I, at some point, decided to write it out. Uh, and I began to do some research. Bud introduced me to a man called Stanton Friedman, who was a UFO researcher. And I said to him, is there any physical evidence of this? Any thing? Hmm. And he said, well, I can introduce you to a metallurgist called Robert Sauerbacher. And Dr. Sauerbacher has published letters about the materials he's working on. And so I telephoned Dr. Sauerbacher and talked to him, and he said, yes, we are working on metals that were recovered from the Roswell craft. And it's very secret, apparently, but I don't have a security clearance, and I don't see why it's kept secret. So I am writing and talking about it. And we talked for a while about the materials and then he said, I would like you to write down everything that happened to you and send me a letter with this. So the next day, I spent the day writing all of it out as I remembered it and put it in a, a an overnight envelope. The UPS overnight had just started, and there was no FedEx office near us. We were living in the country at the time and, and in Manhattan, but it actually in the country at that point. Right. And... um I sent it by UPS overnight, and the next day I received a telephone call from UPS. Dr. Sauerbacher had died during the night, and they would return the envelope to me. I never got the envelope back. And the UPS man said Dr. Sauerbacher had fallen off of his boat, his yacht. He was apparently quite wealthy. And I subsequently looked up his... Uh, the, the death information and it says death by natural causes so I was very frightened because I had already been told by Stanton Friedman that there was a lot of official secrecy involved Yeah, and I thought to myself and I have had a brushes with intelligence stuff in my past and not nothing significant uh, but uh, enough to know that those people can get very serious and that they can function outside of the law. And I thought, what is, what if they're, what if I'm, what if I'm uh, poking a stick into an ant nest here? That's again what it felt like. Yeah. And I decided the hell with it. I'm going to write a book about my experiences because whatever is happening, I'm not going to keep this secret because I have a feeling 
a lot of people are trying to keep this sort of thing secret. And so I wrote communion. That's the beginning. Wow. Yeah, that must have been, I mean, I can't even begin to imagine how hard that's been, that must have been for you to deal with and process and like, it's been a through. nightmare yeah. ongoing yeah. for over 30 years because when communion was published, elements of the intelligence community, in my opinion, started to do everything they could to undercut it and to discredit me. And for a while, none of it worked. And the reason was that a controversial author is interesting to people. Mm -hmm. But then a, uh, a new television show, then new, called South Park came out. This is now in the early 90s. And South Park's first episode made a mockery of my rape by calling it a rectal by calling it a rectal probe and it became an internationally famous meme mm. the rectal probe and a joke and i have endured all of these years having my rape made a joke i've lived with that and i live with it to this day that it's still a joke. A how rape. Does make, how does the a whole joke. thing make you feel? Like the way people have reacted to it and the way... Uh, it makes me... It, I'm disgusted. I am heartened by the reaction of many people who have had the experience themselves. We form a little community, but we're under tremendous threat because right now... Uh, the Defense Department is beginning to have information pried out of it by people like David Grush uh, showing, and then now there's a, Cana a letter from a Canadian MP yeah. talking further about this, uh, showing that they do have materials, just like Dr. Sauerbacher said so many years ago. They have been hiding this from the public for two generations for 80 years and lying about it and making people like me look like idiots when actually we are suffering a, a great wrong. Yeah. And I, I consider them just completely reprehensible. But I do think they're going to come after the close encounter witnesses again. And the reason I think this is they can't let this out and also admit that people were abducted and they did nothing yeah, and, they and told them it. nothing and said nothing to the public and warned nobody. Mm -hmm. They weren't, if I had been, if I had known this could happen, it would have been a different experience entirely. Uh, but no, they kept it silent and they made a mockery of us with an organized effort. And they will now utilize, in my opinion, the, the intellectual media, like the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal, the Atlantic Monthly, uh, British, British papers like The Guardian and uh, The Times, um, and uh, this type of 
of yeah. the, the New Yorker, maybe the Spectator, uh, to say that what we claim never happened to us. And not only that, if the abductors themselves come forward as you know, as if, if we, in other words, if we have open contact of some kind with these strange beings, they're going to say the same thing. People like me, the whole group of us, and there's thousands of us, will be thrown under the bus again. This is yeah. this is what is quite likely to happen because it simply cannot be admitted. The truth cannot be admitted, and the truth is, as if you read the interview with Leslie Kane and Ralph Blumenfall that was given by David Grush, you can see between the lines the possibility that there was some sort of agreement with these entities. I was going to ask you about that later. So you think you think there was? Well, I, I'll tell you this. I said in my experience with them, you have no right and I was answered promptly and firmly, we do have a right. Where did they get it? Mm. Did, I guess they didn't e expand on that at all. No, whether... not at all. <laughs> no. no. Crikey. How many people do you think that are similar, have, ha have had similar experiences? Have you kind of got how, a ballpark How many number? people? I think, it, I think it started in the 60s in a in a noticeable way, peaked in the 70s, and was already declining when I came along in 1985. And it uh, is not happening very often now. Yeah. But it still does happen, apparently. Uh, as to how many people, uh, we got hundreds of thousands of letters when after communion was published. Hundreds of thousands. And the the um the truth is that the face on the cover of communion that big black-eyed face was a trigger that caused people to realize that the strange nightmare that they had been remembering for years was true it, it there was something there after all and they would write letters describing their experience and it was not one letter after another uh saying oh i was abducted just like you the adopt the abduction stories were rare the actual truth was the contact stories are the most complex and extraordinary uh, record of human experience that's ever been assembled. And it is now 35,000 approximately letters are present at Rice University in an archive called the Archive of the Impossible. Rice University is a prominent university in the United States uh, cited in Houston, Texas. And it... Um, so uh, uh, that is there. In fact, the, the eyes on that cover were the trigger for the first for first contact because that's what it amounts to. Yeah. And my wife, God bless her soul, now deceased, um, was the one who said we were getting these letters coming into the apartment in great piles, just dumped on the floor by the postman who didn't know what to do with them. There were so many. We didn't either. I, did, I said to Ann, what are we going to do? Because they all have return addresses. We can't just throw them out. But I, how can we possibly read these? She said, well, I can read them. And, 
she basically bought a letter opener and started whipping them open and reading them. She was wow. very quick and very brilliant. She's yeah. You can see her there behind me. And she was an extraordinary human being and had a great deal of insight. She's the one who decided to call the book Communion instead yeah. of what I had called it, which was Body Terror. And yeah. uh, because it was such a physical level of terror, it was beyond psychological. It was absolutely incredible. Uh, so um, those letters, 35,000 are there. God knows how many people have had abductions, though. There's no studies. There's no... Yeah. You know, no one delves into this that deeply, but it's a lot. Yeah, yeah, I bet. Um, wow. I get, how, how many times do you, are you aware of how many times you've been taken? Or have I have been taken one time. Uh, one time. But uh, I, uh, after the experience, after I realized that it was real and there was somebody there, I discussed it with Anne and we decided that I, I really, we had to do more. In other words, it was too extraordinary to ignore or to hide from. I wasn't willing to do that. I wanted more. I wanted to try to form a relationship with whatever this was. It had been a terribly difficult beginning, but that didn't mean it would always be that way. And so I began to go out into the woods in the night, into the same place that they had taken me from, I went out night after night, and it was really frightening. The first night I went out, I could only get to the edge of the lawn, and then the woods started beyond the lawn, because I could not make my legs work. I could not. I couldn't walk. I could not yeah. walk into the woods. And but eventually, I you know I got a little farther down the path every night until finally I could go sit in this place and meditate, and. Um, a relationship started that goes on to this day. They're very much a part of my life, and it's no longer horrible. Uh, I would not trade it for anything. It's, it's a wonderful same, experience to have them in my life. The same and beings that, that took you in that first occasion. You'll have to say it again. Your voice is very faint. Sorry. The same beings that took you on, on that first occasion. I don't know. Okay. I have no were... idea, and I don't know what I was, whether or not he was even taken anywhere on any occasion. Because yeah. you know, I have the physical injuries. I had the, I had the the uh, rape injury was severe and was treated for twenty years. It was a, quite a scar, mm. and uh, the mark in the side of my head disappeared. But in May of nineteen eighty nine, people came into my house in the country and put a little object in my ear, which is here now to this day. And I have, over the years, learned to use it. I use it. It's a research. It works brilliantly as a research tool. And the books I've written since, uh, uh, first Afterlife Revolution about Annie's passing, and then... Yeah, uh, I, I want to circle back to that in a little bit. Um, okay. Yeah. Then... Um, a new world, then Jesus, a new vision, uh, and then um, now more recently, them have all been written using it as a research tool. And I was taught how to use it as a research tool. So how and I can it... tell you exactly how it works. Yeah, please. Um, <laughs> and who who was allegedly responsible for creating it? Mm. Uh, 
and this is going to get into a level of high strangeness, but that's where we are anyway. So, yeah. Um, the, uh, after, before, what, what happened was this, it, it was put into me in 1989 in May. I was awake when it happened. I, you know, I was wide awake. I was reading in bed in May, in, in a warm May evening. The windows were open in the country house. And I was um, suddenly aware of the fact that there were people moving in the house. I immediately started to go for, the alarm system was on and armed. I could see that. But I heard what I heard was gravel crunching in the driveway, mm -hmm. and there were no lights. At 11 o'clock at night, that is definitely bad news, especially in a life like mine. So uh, I was um, terrified, and I had a shotgun under the bed and a pistol in the drawer beside the bed, and... I started to go for the shotgun, and when I did that, no, no, I, first, let me get the sequence correct. I started to go for a bank of switches, which, if you turn them on, would completely flood the house, all around the house with light. Right. Instantly. And um, As I did that, I saw there were two people standing at the foot of the bed, near the foot of the bed. They were already in the room. And at that moment, I heard a voice in the backyard go, condition red. And this was a man and a woman standing there. And I started to go instead for the shotgun under the bed. But they approached me and immobilized me. I could no longer see. I, everything went black. I was turned onto my left, onto my right side, and pressure was pressed against my head like this, pressing me down into the pillow in waves of significant pressure. And the woman's voice was speaking very soothingly, although I do not remember the words. And then they left. There was a great flash of light and a lot of crashing in the woods. I leaped out of bed, grabbed the pistol, and ran through the house looking for a breach in the alarm system because I could see that it was still armed, and there was no breach. Everything was intact. There was no window opened or anything. And I finally ended up sitting on the side of the bed thinking, that must have been what they call a lucid dream. I had never had a dream like that before. And I had an uneasy sleep. I woke up in the morning, and I told Annie about it, as I told her about all these experiences, and I said I thought it was a lucid dream. Then I went out to get in the car and go get the paper. I used to ride down to a newsstand in the town to get the paper, because they didn't deliver it uh, in those days. Mm -hmm. And I was appalled to see that the alarm system was still armed when I was in the garage, but the garage door was wide open and the alarm system was not responding. I got in the car, I disarmed the alarm system, got in the car and found the car was so full of static electricity. I, I, there were bolts of little bolts of lightning hitting my hands and things. And I jumped out of it because I was afraid it would explode. Yeah. 
And uh, I, I rushed back in the house and called the alarm man and told him that the system was defective, that the garage door was wide open and the system had been remained armed. He came over and he tested it and found that there was a very high intensity magnetic field around the switch switching system on the garage door, so intense that even though the garage door was open, the switch hadn't tripped. And he said, we don't have anything remotely this powerful in our systems, and all I can do is just replace this switch, which he did, and it worked fine again after that. We tried to download the alarm system's uh, memory of, of, of movements and intrusions, but it was scrambled and we couldn't do it. So then later th th that day or the next day, I began, my ear began to hurt. And I reached up and felt this lump. And I already knew about implants. I'd already well, well aware of them by that time. Yeah. And I thought, oh my God, it was, it's an implant. And I went back and forth. Should I get it removed or not? Finally, we had lost the cabin after the debacle with uh, South Park killed my sales of my books. Um, and we'd left the cabin, we'd lost it. And we were living in a little condo in Texas at that point. And I had decided I wanted it removed. And this was an opportunity because I knew a doctor there who would do it, mm -hmm. even though he didn't know about that there was an alien implant at first, or an implant. I, I never saw any aliens. And there may have been something else in the room, but I've never been sure. Anyway, uh, he tried to remove it, and he made an incision here, and it moved, when he touched it with the edge of a scalpel, it moved down into the earlobe really? on its own. He got a little sliver of it, which he sent to a lab, and the lab found that the sliver consisted of a, a bit of metal and cilia, which were motile, which were moving. And the lab tech called him and said, first he said, is this a joke? And he said, no, it's not a joke. It came out of a patient's ear. And he said, because this is some kind of bizarre technology. And, of course, the sliver and the labs, the lab report never came. The sliver disappeared from the office of a, a, a materials scientist at Southwest Research, William Mallow. And I was left knowing this, but having no proof, as always. And um, it came back up. And for years, I had no idea what to do with it. Annie died. And a few weeks later, she began to return. And as I outlined in Afterlife Revolution, a slit had opened up in my eye that if I look against a white background, I can see words flashing past at breakneck speed in the slit. And one day I was doing this, I was fascinated by this phenomenon that had not been present before Annie, when Annie was alive, that I had noticed. Mm -hmm. And I finally said, who are you? 
and it slowed down, and the words, it's me, Anne, came across. Wow. Now, some, I guess in uh, 2016 or 2017, a doctor with connections to the intelligence community wanted me to get a CT scan of it. And I'm sure he was hoping that I would eventually agree to have it removed, a, another removal attempt, which I would never do. Um, that The CT scan was on a Thursday. On a Tuesday night, in the early morning, early hours of Wednesday morning, there came a very rapid, soft knock on the door. Like, knock, 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 knock. I knew that knock. And I opened the door because I knew that there would be someone extraordinary there. And there were two men there. And they came in, and they explained the implant to me and the creator of it. It was created by a man named Constantine Rodave. And uh, whether he created it in this life or in the other life of the other side, I don't know. But he, they said he created it. They mispronounced his name, so I didn't understand exactly at the time. They said Constantine Rodive. And um, I Googled it and eventually realized that they'd met Constantine Rodave, whom I knew about. And <clears throat> he was an expert in communication between the living and the dead using electronic means. He was a scientist. And he was had died by that time, been dead for years. And they explained to me that the words racing past are are drawn up from my unconscious mind, from, from my memory banks, is what they said. And they are like um, triggers. If I'm thinking about something and trying to do research, these words will trigger memories in my conscious mind. And it also will work to... Uh, if I need something and I'm trying to find some information, that information will float into my life in one way or another. And they said that was because of another aspect of its functionality. And I have, it has dramatically increased my research abilities. Mm. Yeah. And um, that's it, it, these more recent books are so deeply researched because of it. Yeah. In any case, the two men mentioned Constantine Rodave. And I, I was telling, I started to tell friends about this experience, of course. And one of them said, well, I have a slit like that in my eye. I never knew how to use it, but I do see words racing past all the time in the same sort of slit. And here's the fascinating thing. He is one of the world's leading experts on Constantine Rodave. And so he does not wish his name to be mentioned. I've asked him. So it, it, clearly something there's something to all of that. And I think that it is a means of communicating between the living and the dead. And I'll conclude by this part of the interview by saying that that is probably a huge part of this whole experience and why 
it is not simply a contact between aliens and human beings, if that is the case at all. Yeah. Yeah, fascinating. And and I definitely want to get on to talking about yeah, how, how it links with consciousness and the afterlife and, and things like that, because that's something I'm really fascinated in. To to firstly, I've got a question here, and I, and I will just mention that on on another day, if we had more time, I would love to like ask ask you you know many many follow up questions and and listen to you yeah. talk for for a long time about all of that because uh, well, I'm it unfortunately is struggling with allergies today. No, no, it's uh, don't worry about that, Willie. I'm sorry, and uh, I'll get you out of here as soon as I can. Um, this one is from Joe. He's a patron um, of mine, so he says he's a, he's a big fan of your work. By the way, he's been asking me to to try and get you on the show for quite a long time. Um, so he says you've described tech. Uh, sorry, you've described how the visitors wake you up at regular intervals to practice mindfulness techniques, meditations, body scans, etc. What is the purpose of this? Have they explained it to you, or what significance does it have in your life? That's kind of part A of his question. <clears throat> there are three meditations every day, one at one o'clock in the afternoon Pacific time, which is open to anyone who wants to join. Um, it, we do it on Zoom. And one, the next one is, the next two are private, my own. One is at 11 o'clock at night. And the one that started after Annie passed away, and when I began to be waked up for, is at 3 o'clock in the morning approximately. Mm -hmm. And uh, th this exercise, is, it's called the sensing exercise, where you take your attention and you pay, place part of your attention on your body and you let your thoughts flow on their own. And you remain in this state for, in my case, I've been doing it for a long, long time. For, you know, however long you can, 10 minutes, an hour. And it opens you up to influences from outside. And the one at 3 o'clock in the morning, or approximately 3 o'clock in the morning, it varies, obviously, is a time of day that in one yoga tradition in India is called Brahma Mahartha time, the time when the mind is most open to learning. And that's the time when all of the research, all of the ideas and so forth coalesce and uh, where the books form, the books that I've written since, since Annie passed away form. And I think it, uh, my relationship with her is a very profound part of that yeah. period. And uh, after she passed away, just a month or so later, I began to be waked up at that hour by somebody would blow in my face or pinch me or something. And I was, for many years, was waked up every night religiously at that hour. Now I have to wake myself up. I, I do not use an alarm because I think it should be organic, part of my being and my experience of life. And every once in a while, if I fail at night or two, there comes a gentle knocking or a little uh, uh, brush of my face. But it's very gentle now. It's not it's not rough like it used to be it's become much more gentle yeah but it's a wonderful part of my life it's the way i live wow and as to the why well it opens the mind and it opens the and it's very healthy for the body too it's a very healthy thing to do what do you think that the uh, ufo 
the UAP phenomenon, this phenomenon represents um, in terms of, you know, extraterrestrial, interdimensional, future human, other. Um, and, and what do you think or what is your best guess as to the agenda of this phenomenon? Well, uh, there were abductions in which people's sexual material, their women's eggs and men's semen, sometimes actual fetuses, were removed. So there's an agenda there that has to do with experimenting with us. Uh, and I think it's not very ethically designed because it takes without warning and gives nothing back. Uh, uh, you can get something back if you try, but it's not on offer. And there's no explanation given. Uh, obviously, they're experimenting with human life in ways that we would not. Um, I think there is also a lot of knowledge on offer. I have certainly gained a great deal of knowledge from this experience of my relationship with them. Much of it has been sublime and very worthwhile at every level. Um, but there remains the, the deeply immoral reality of the abductions. Yeah. You wouldn't hazard a guess on on origins. You you leave that open. You don't know, and you don't want to. You don't want to. I no. I I can't do that because I don't no. know. I do know from something was told to me by a, a military officer, General Arthur Exon, who was a family friend and a com and commanding officer at Wright Patterson Air Force Base for many years. Mm -hmm. That we do have biological materials bodies. So there is a physical element to them. They're not, yeah. it's not a, it's not a non-physical thing. Although yeah. when they come in here and blow in my face and so forth, I definitely don't sense the presence of a physical being. Uh, although you can, when someone blows in your face, you can smell their breath. All right. I mean, it, so it's very strange. It's like they're, yeah. they're not as dense as us somehow, but, um, so, but there, there is a physical element to it. Definitely. Yeah, it's very nuanced and, and yeah, conflicting, yeah. complicated. Um, this question is from somebody called Nick. He actually asked this question to Leslie Kane through me. I spoke to her very recently. And Leslie said, oh, she did answer it, but she said, oh, you should ask that to Whitley because she, okay. she mentioned Whitley. And I said, oh, I'm talking to Whitley this week. And, and so anyway, um, I've kind of tweaked it just slightly so he doesn't mention your book, Surviving Death, because obviously that wouldn't make sense. So um, if being on the other side or, or the afterlife is like having any kind of vantage point of view on this reality, one cannot help but wonder if the phenomenon could be observed even from there. What are your thoughts on this? And have you ever asked any spirit people about non-human entities in our world? The only spirit person I have any contact with is my wife. And... Uh, I have asked her who the visitors are and the answer has been very equivocal that they are an element of consciousness that is not as dense as we are 
and has fallen away from the primary thread of the journey, the, the primary journey. And I'm, I think that they're perhaps here trying to find themselves as much as anything. You've previously attended um, a, at least one seance with Stuart Alexander, a physical medium that you've yes. interviewed on your show. I've interviewed Stuart, um, really nice guy. Um, as I understand, you had a phenomenal experience while with him, a really extraordinary thing. So I was wondering if you could talk about that in, in a little bit of detail. Yes. I, uh, Leslie introduced me to Stuart. Yeah. And Stuart agreed to allow me and a friend of mine to come into his home group, his seance group that's been meeting every week for many years. Mm -hmm. And when we were in the group, the spirit trumpet, which was on the floor, rose up off of the floor and began to move around the room on its own. With There's no possibility that it was a fake that it was wired or anything like that. None. I'll just say that unequivocally. I, I checked things too carefully, and it could not have been done with magnetism because or any known form of a, a magic trick, period. I was there, saw it. So I thought to myself, this can't be real. Yeah. Whereupon it comes over to my face, comes up to my face and starts literally going up and down my nose. And I thought it's rubbing itself in my nose. <laughs> it, it, it's joking with me over my thoughts. Yeah. And then the friend was sitting there and I said, go to her. And it went over and it went up and down in front of her face. Then it went around the room a couple times more and up, up, up the ceiling and did all sorts of things and then went down and uh, back to the floor where it had started. Then the young woman, who was a daughter of friends, uh, who had come for a sort of the adventure and had quite an adventure, yeah. uh, was... Uh, given a um, seat beside Stuart and something was done. She, she was, uh, as I recall, she was, um, I may be getting this wrong. It's been a while. It, it, uh, somehow or another, there was a strap that bound Stuart to the chair mm -hmm. and his arm went up through the strap and the strap ended up in her hands and she has it to this day wow and it was just remarkable there were there were many things that happened in that séance and then to my great distress when i asked a year later to go again stuart said no you can never come back and that ended it do you know why i have no idea mm. And am, am I right that you kind of, was there some kind of transfiguration as well? I think that's what they call it, where you saw like the face of somebody on Stuart's face, or am I getting my wires my mother, there? My mother's face appeared on his face, yes. 
What was that like? Was it convincing? It was very to you disturbing was... because she didn't look very happy. Yeah, yeah, and and you had no doubt that that was the face. That's of what mother. it looked like to me. Yeah. Wow. Unbelievable. I've spoken to quite a few people now that have had incredible experiences with Stuart, and and I've obviously yes. spoken to Stuart as well. It's uh, it's phenomenal stuff. I I hope one day to be lucky enough to get to go and and sit with him myself and see if I can. Well, don't expect it to happen more than things. once. No, <laughs> no. I mean, he's got a zillions of people wanting to go sit with him. Yeah. And a tiny room with a very small group, and I can yeah. well understand why they can't. They can't let. You know, it, it it's unfair to others to yeah. let one person in, and then the hundreds and hundreds of people who want that so badly don't get it because yeah. there's simply no room. It's so I can understand why he would. But it was a wonderful experience, and I'm very grateful for it. I don't want to seem like I, there's any bad grapes because there isn't yeah. uh, any bad feelings because sour grapes, I mean, because uh, there's not the case. And uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, would, I had a marvelous experience at Stewart's, and wow. we both did. Extraordinary. Can you can you talk a little bit about yeah the afterlife revolution? Your book that you wrote with your wife, I think, after her transition. Uh, yes. To, to, yeah. Well. What happened was that after the night she died, and I was at 7.15, I was sitting in the living room. She had been, she had died intentionally. She had a brain tumor that was slowly destroying her, and she decided to go. And so hospice came in, and they assisted the transition, which is perfectly legal in California. And um, she died over a period of three or four days. And she wanted to be conscious as long as possible. And uh, after she died, I was devastated, bereft. Because Anne was, we had a very close relationship. It was a wonderful marriage. She's back there looking at me right now. Um, and... Uh, I was sitting in my chair just thinking, Annie, if you still exist in any way, please, please find some way to let me know. And the phone rang. And I thought, that's the last thing. I saw it was one of Anne's friends. They didn't, no one knew yet that she'd passed on. Right. And I thought, oh, God, I don't want to be, I don't, I'm not in any condition to tell someone this terrible news right now. But I answered it anyway, and it was a woman named Belle Fuller, and I said, she said, Whitley, something very strange just happened. Is Anne all right? And I said, Belle, I'm sorry to tell you Annie died at 7.15. Belle knew she was sick, and she said, because Whitley, Anne just said in my ears, clear as day, call Whitley. And I thought to myself, she said that, that happened exactly at the moment that that I was asking for some sign. But I'm not a very easily convinced person, and I thought perhaps it had been a coincidence. Or Bell had somehow heard that she died and had sort of decided to do that to make me feel better or something. Yeah. But it kept happening. 
with other people. Uh, Numerous things, not just that, but numerous other things kept happening with them. And uh, to the point where after a week, I couldn't deny that it was Anne doing it. It had to be. There couldn't have been any other explanation. And then I remembered that back in the 90s, at one point, she'd come out of her office when she was working on the letters and said, Whitley, this is something to do with what we call death. And when the visitors would come to our cabin when other people were there, which happened quite a few times, we would always know they were going to show up because the dead would show up first or with them. It was, it was a mute, they were connected somehow. Yeah. And, um, um, I got back in touch with Anne and I learned an immense amount from Anne. I learned beautiful things. She taught me, I, I began to ask her questions like, what is enlightenment? Which is of course, something that I'm incredibly interested in and have been my whole life working with. And she explained it in just a few words perfectly. She said, enlightenment is what happens when there is nothing left of us but love. Wow. Those are powerful words. And I asked her about compassion because it's a mysterious thing. If you think of, is compassion giving a dollar to a, or a pound to a beggar or what is it? And she said simply, each of us is all we have. And if you think of the other person like that, no matter what state your relationship is, you look at that person and you think, there, that person is all they have. It changes everything immediately, every time. Those were such powerful words. She became my spiritual mentor as she had been my guide in the physical world. And one of my friends said very simply, who knew Anne, he said, Anne was an angel. And she was. She was a very strict angel, I have to admit, especially with a miscreant like me. But she was definitely an angel. And I was incredibly lucky to have her in my life. And you, and you still ha- have her, right? What? You still, commu- you still have her in your life in All the sense the you communicate regularly, right? Yeah, absolutely. The last time we, I experienced Anne was uh, Monday. And I was doing an interview with a man named Drew Gregory. And it was a very difficult experience because it's, he is a man who has experienced evil in a very profound way and has he's a good man and he it, it's a description of an attempted possession that failed because he was a good man and it was just exhausting me it was taking every bit of energy out of my body mm-hmm. and i had to stop the interview in the middle and go rest and when i was resting what happens with ann is this wonderful energy comes down onto my legs and this vibration comes through my whole body and it energizes me and that happened and i was able to go back and do this interview finish the interview Uh, and i you know i think it started in uh 2016 in june of 2016 when 
I was at a conference and I saw, I was meditating at 11 in the hotel room and I saw this Vesica Pisces shape, very dark in the room. And I was looking at it and thinking, is that, what is that? Is that a shadow? Or, And then it proceeds to come toward me and turn and lie down on my feet. And I look down and I can't see my feet. It's, in other words, it's a, it's, it's a presence. And then I feel this lovely energy coming into my body from it. And that's been going on ever since. And the reason I think it's Anne is pretty straightforward. Uh, Anne used to love to take the kids, the grandkids, to movies. Mm -hmm. And she loved the movies themselves. And we were at some movie, kids movie, and I have to admit, I'm not as much of a natural child as Annie was. She could be in her childhood very easily. And um, I fell asleep during the movie. And I telling you, I was buzzed so intensely that I nearly jumped out of the movie, the chair in the movie theater. I was waked up immediately because she's using these eyes too. And she was enjoying the movie and did not want me to close my eyes. I have been wearing, ever since this started, I've been wearing both rings on the theory that we have two souls now down to one body in this level. And yeah. she still uses this body every time, all she wants. And um, so um, that's where we are with her. And I can go on a little bit more. The allergies have abated. So we, we can go on for another half hour. Okay, brilliant. So what are your thoughts on potential links, parallels, connections, overlaps, gray areas? You know, I could go on between UFOs or the UFO phenomenon, consciousness, and for want of a better word, the afterlife or, or whatever comes after death. First, the afterlife is real. It is more real than this life. Uh, Annie joked with me one time and said, Whitley, as soon as you get over here, you're going to realize you're the dead, not us. And, yeah. and I said, that's, that's wonderful to think of that. And she said, you'll find out. And the reason is this. They're outside of time looking in. We're inside of time looking out. And as I have learned from Anne, the soul enters the body in order to experience the uh, newness in the time stream so that the experiences that come into us are all new in the time stream when we're here we are only in the moment she used to say in her life she used to say the moment is all we have now is life mm. Boy, those words move me because yeah. you hear them and you think, I can be awake just like she was. She yeah. was awake and she is still awake. Anyway, the visitors, I think, are physically less dense. I think they are also looking into the stream of time from outside. And I think that's one of the reasons we find them so frightening, because we don't want to be drawn out of the time stream. This is why we're here. 
we're we're taking this journey and it's very important not to see too far ahead because that would be like being dead and alive at the same time if you knew this when yeah. one of the first things she said after she died was it's all a game Whitley and it is a game but it's a serious game because in this game we are gathering the energy of experience which is essential to our further growth and ascension and every single soul will ascend in the end a lot of them will have a lot of trouble obviously but they'll do it there will be no one left behind no one not in any place in this enormous universe you understand i'm talking about one little planet here mm. this process is repeated almost to infinity it's vast as this whole enormous idea journeys toward ecstasy that's where we're all going it's where we're all going and this angel or saint or whatever i had the good luck to marry is helping in her own way to further that just like Stuart in his way is and his wonderful little group of of friends who in the home group yeah so do you think every being from every planet in in the galaxy and the universe kind of do you think the afterlife uh, you know, it's hard to word these things, but will every being go to the same place in your mind? And again, that's just, that's insinuating that the afterlife is a place, one place where everybody meets up. But it's not necessarily that. It's probably much more complicated, more nuanced. But do you think a similar process or the same process happens for, yeah, regardless of where you are situated? Billions of years ago, we were one. All of us. Yeah. And all that was not much larger than the head of a pin. And at some point, a question came. And the whole universe burst out of that question. And this journey that will take many billions of years is a response to that question. And when the question is answered, and it will be answered, we will go back into one, and we will be more, much more than we were before, until another question arises. Yeah. And we'll take that journey to and there's no end to this there's no final end i always wonder that well indefinite? you know the people the beings on the dark side get very claustrophobic about this because there's no end there's no conclusion the visitors are less dense than we are and they are they are they th that's why when you're with them there's no barrier between the living and the dead for you either it falls when you're close to them and the dark ones are it can be very difficult to be with them because of the 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 their internal condition is so so bizarre and negative uh because it, it, any 
time anyone has fallen like that, it becomes very bizarre mm-hmm. and and weird. And and the weirder they are, the more you can be sure that there's something wrong there. But the ones that are that are on the journey, the the the, the true path, you know it immediately when you're with them. And you know that you can gain you can gain from them. And Annie brings them. That, that's one of the reasons that my experience of them has become so rich, because she's there, and she is doing this. And she's not alone. There's many, many, many souls. Human souls are working with their friends and relatives all the time. This is a big deal in that sense, and it's. An, Annie and I are special in one sense that I can articulate this so clearly and have seen deeply into it as almost seen it almost as a dead person sees it. And, um, um, uh, but it's a, it's a, it's, it's a common part of nature. Let me put it that way. Let me tell you how she, what she did, if I may, uh, because it's something that can be useful to, anyone who knows about it. Uh, uh, In January before she died, she died in August. Annie probably already knew what she was doing. Mm -hmm. She insisted that I memorize a certain poem by William Butler Yeats called Song of the Wandering Angus, which goes like this. I went out to the hazel wood because a fire was in my head and cut and peeled a hazel wand and hooked a berry to a thread. When white moths were on the wing, and the moth-like stars were flickering out, I dropped the berry in the stream, in a stream, and I I hooked the berry to a a thread, and dropped the the berry in a stream, and caught a little silver trout. And it goes on from there. But the important part of the poem is the white moth. And after Annie died, a white moth started flying back and forth in front of my various, my many, one of my surveillance cameras in the living room. I have places full of cameras, as you may imagine. I imagine, yeah. <laughs> of course it is. So that is not to say I've ever caught any visitors on them, but I've tried, and I do try. Yeah. Um, the uh, uh, So... I was at a conference and I kept getting a notice from the alarm system that there was something moving in the living room. And when I looked in the, at the, at the recordings, it which there was this moth flying back and forth in front of the camera. Thought, what in the world is a moth flying in front of the camera for? Why doesn't it go anywhere else? And someone at the conference said, Whitley, a psychic said, that's no ordinary moth. I don't know exactly what's going on, but that's not an ordinary moth. And it was big. And th- that was the beginning of the white moth. And I, then at Christmas, I by the Christmas time had come, and I had realized that the white moth had something to do with Anne. And I was telling my son about the white moth down at his place. He uh, lives about 100 miles away. And suddenly the alarm system went off, and it showed that there was the white moth flying back and forth in front of the camera as I was telling him about saying it, it has something to do with Anne. And then I remembered the poem. And then I remembered that her favorite story of mine is a story about an old woman discovering that she has died. And it's called The White Moths. 
And uh, I thought to myself, my God, Anne has created an avatar. And I went to up to a place called the Esalen Institute. Yeah. And at this big conference of, of uh, academics and scientists. And I was telling the story of the white moth. Uh, afterlife revolution had already been written. And suddenly a white moth comes flying around and uh, th then we all go to lunch and the white moth appears over the lunch table flying around in circles again. And everyone's laughing and clapping at this point. <laughs> then we have the final banquet a few days later. And in the middle of the banquet, the white moth appears, flies around the room. Everyone's laughing and clapping. It lands on the head of Jeremy Vaney, who was a podcaster on my website on Unknown Country, and is now, he, he takes Dreamland once a month. And Anne just loved him. She thought he was a wonderful podcaster because he's so skeptical and has such a great sense of humor, just like Anne. <laughs> and so um, uh, I took a picture of him, of it on Jeremy, whereupon it lifts off and flies and flies toward the the, there was a big fireplace and a big uh, stone chimney. Fire flies towards the stone chimney, and before all of our eyes, it just disappears. Really? Now, anyone who sees the white moth, and many people do see the white moth, knows that Anne is there for them. And they can do this sensing exercise. You take your attention to your body, let your mind flow, let your thoughts flow, and very often you get something from her, some lovely thing or some support. She's often, all over the place. Yeah. She's she's very very available. Do you often have the white moth in your house? And yes, I'll tell like you the that. last time the white moth occurred, I was in England. And um, I opened a magazine, and to my amazement, I saw a little story about a church in Swafford called Houghton on the Hill. And what was so amazing about this was that 35 years ago, 30-plus years ago, I had seen in my mind's eye while I was meditating a piece of paper as vivid as a television screen and on it were being typed the words Houghton Hill, Houghton Hill, Houghton Hill again and again. I've never forgotten that and I didn't know this church existed. Yeah. And so I was in Sussex and I thought I'm going to find, I'm going to this place. And I went to Swafford. I took the train. I can't drive in England because I'm I don't want to hurt anybody. Let me put it that way. And I, I'm not a good left-hand driver. I, I don't do it well. So I took the train and the bus and took about four hours. But I got there and I had called a hotel and beforehand and told them why I was coming. And then it turned out that there was a taxi driver who had already found out how to go to the little church. And so I got a taxi to the church. And there was a wonderful lady at the church 
who was part of the board of directors of the church to show me around and explain everything. And it was just a lovely experience. And it turns out that this church, and this is quite important, don't forget it, has, it was abandoned for many years. The little town that it served was abandoned, emptied out because the, the agriculture, it was an agricultural community and the work they did was no longer needed. It was apparently mechanized or something in the 19th century. And by the 20s, the church was pretty much abandoned. It was covered with vines. It was like a, looked like a little hill at one point. There are pictures of it. And uh, it began to be invaded by Satanists who were making rituals in it. And a local parishioner thought, this cannot stand. And he raised money to get the vines pulled off the church and to restore the church. And he did succeed in restoring the church. And someone said to the people, you know, it's it's all plastered inside. And that plastering was done during the Reformation when it was decided that there could be no imagery in churches. So it could be that there is a there are, there are frescoes underneath that plaster. And they had the plaster removed by professional restorers. And there, it turned out, is the oldest image of the last judgment in Europe, painted in 1090. Wow. And I was thought to myself, I have Alpha and Omega, uh, that perhaps I have been drawn to this image of the last judgment for a reason because this planet is changing very rapidly and in ways that will profoundly alter human life on Earth. Mm. We're coming to a point of profound inflection, and this is also why the visitors are emerging. Yeah. Yeah, I think we are We are reaching a, a tipping point, aren't we? Yeah, I mean, but we let, me, let, me, let me add the in the middle of the journey, for the first time in over a year, the white moth appeared on a camera in this room, in this room we we're in. And I was riding to Swafford on the train and suddenly- so you were the, in the UK and you're looking yeah, at Yeah, in the UK. And this phone dinged and I looked and there was the white moth flying back and forth in front of the camera that's right up there. Wow. In other words, Annie was confirming the that I was right to take this pilgrimage. Yeah. And the message of the pilgrimage to spread that message. Yeah, it's amazing. And if you're in the UK, uh, do go to Swafford and go to the little church. And leave them some a bit of money because they, they need money to keep the restoration going and keep the church up. And it's a lovely journey and a lovely place. Yeah, well, I'm not there now, but yeah, if I'm ever, well, when, when I'm next there, I'll, I'll try and at some point I'll try and visit. It's a bit um, out of the way. Yeah, oh, nowhere's that far out of the way in the UK, you know. It's no, small compared it, to. <laughs> it, there's at least one cab driver who knows how to get to the church. You end up yeah. on a dirt on a dirt road, right? Yeah, you it's, just got to find the cab driver that knows the way. Oh, um, you'll find. They'll find. It. <laughs> they're, they're all. They're, it's a, you know, cab drivers in in the UK are a special breed, and they will find you. You any cab driver you get will find it. Yeah. Cool. Um, this question's a, you know, it's a tricky one in the sense that you could probably spend hours answering it, but it just kind of a summary. I ask this to most of my guests, at, at least when, when we talk about, you know, matters pertaining to the survival of consciousness and things like that. So 
in your in your mind, in your opinion, what do you think happens after we die? And I know that again, there's many directions you can go with that, but but it's kind of yeah. Give me your here is let me let me go back to the pyramid of Unus and the pyramid text, uh, which is the oldest religious text in the world, and also probably the last real text of soul science, the first part of it in particular. And it explains this. It says that the spine is a column of light, and around it, it's a serpent of light, and around it are seven smaller serpents whirling around. They later became known as the chakras, but they are called the things, the tanitter in the in the in the Egyptian text. And they are drawing experience in to the spine from the life that is being lived. And it is accelerating it into the second body, the second part of the being, which is gathering it. And when you die, the body, the physical body, ceases to function and it releases along the spine and the second body comes out and is absorbed into the soul that created this in the first place. And for better or for worse, that experience either helps that soul on the journey of ascension or weighs it down. Mm. And the Egyptians had the 42 laws of Ma'at to follow carefully so that you would be sure that at the end, when your second body emerged, it would be lighter than a feather, yeah. and it, it, and the judgment would be when the when the soul was laid on one side and a feather on the other, the feather would would be heavier, and the soul would rise up, returning from whence it came. I think that's a succinct explanation. So do you do you think there is some some form again? I don't know. We're not going to try and categorize it, but some form of karma or judgment, something like that. We we make the choices that we live by. I think that's the best way to respond to them. Yeah, some maybe some kind of naturalistic process that has parallels. It, with... I don't think that there's somebody there saying, "Ah, oh, I look at that. You stole stole when you were twelve years old. That'll be that'll be yeah. fourteen years in pur purgatory." And uh-oh, you sassed a nun, that's another thousand years. <laughs> I don't think so. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I grew up Catholic, and we used to have these little little things to show you how long you had to stay in purgatory for each sin. Mm. And, it, you know, uh, talking back to your mother was like 50 years in purgatory. Talking back to sister was a thousand years in purgatory. <laughs> I don't well, think, I think the Pope closed purgatory. I know, no, I didn't. I'm sorry, closed limbo, which is where the souls of the unbaptized babies went. And yeah. they were, they were, they were helped there by nuns who had seen the face of God, but just out of their, their kindness and their love had gone into limbo to help the babies anyway, uh, and denied themselves the joys of heaven. Um, all of that is part of the journey, but the journey is really simpler and older, and it has to do very much 
with our looking at ourselves clearly. We travel here in the darkness of a mandala, in the shadows, and in the shadows we are seeking knowledge. We're making discoveries. This is what life is. It's a process of discovery. And then when we die and rise out of the stream of time, we rise out of the shadows into the light of knowing, and then we know what we have gathered. And has it, you know, I think that people can gather very dense experiences, and they don't, they're not helped by that. And they fall, those things fall away, and they fall away until maybe, maybe there's not much left of a life. It's maybe mostly forgotten. And then that, little essence drifts about and ends up in another womb, perhaps, of an animal or a human being or something, yeah. and comes back and does it again or ends up somewhere else entirely. But um, the ones who have worked toward building a strong soul and lived their lives with compassion and care and insight, all they could bring to it. When they die, they take a richness to the soul that gave them life in the first place. That's what we're all trying to do. Yeah, yeah that's profound words there. Let me ask you a quick question from Joe. Um, I asked you one from him earlier. This one relates to survival. Um, so he says, in some cases, mental mediums report that the deceased were placed in decompression chambers where emotional traumas are worked through and healed before they go on to their next stage. Is this something you've heard of or can shed any light on? I do know that there is a great deal of healing in this other state. There's healing. I'm... I, 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 I wouldn't say that I was aware of any sort of mechani mechanical descriptions mm. of it. Yeah. But um, there, there is a, there is a, there is a process of healing. Yes. Yeah, but more spiritual, more like, uh, yeah, rather than the machine. Well, it's a matter of seeing things as they truly are. Mm -hmm. Seeing things very clearly, and when you do that, you find often that there's something deeper, not arbitrary, and that you can use the experience, even the even things you've done that are were were hurtful to others, as part of your own journey of learning. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Could you just speak for just a minute or two about your thoughts on David Grush and that whole situation um, since he has yeah come out and, and said publicly the things he said? Well, I think that the visitors told me that a long time ago that as the planet comes to its the climax of this cycle, they will emerge. And they are emerging now because we're coming to the climax of the cycle. Yeah. Uh, and um, at the same time, you have the, a terrified Department of Defense in the United States, which I'm sure that fears are 
shared in the UK and in Russia and China that something they have been hiding for a long time is going to be revealed. Yeah. And you have also got the ones who did the abductions, whoever they were and are, would undoubtedly not want that known. And so I think what you're going to see is there will be first more revelations. It's going to become clear that there are physical objects. There are supposedly the United States has 12 d devices. Uh, that a great deal of money has been spent clandestinely, that clandestinely, the public has been lied to for years and years, religiously supported by a media which should have known better but chose not to. And that has to be faced by the media, but it won't be. No. And the government will be make every effort to spin this in its own direction. And as far as the close encounter witnesses is concerned, are concerned, I don't know of anybody in the whole system who wants them to be uh, acknowledged at all, including the visitors who did these things to them. The last thing they would want is for this to be acknowledged. So I think one part of the lie will continue, and that is they will be lying about us and saying that never happened. Mm. And when the, if if there's direct communication and these entities speak from on high, everyone will believe them and get a, another good laugh out of us. And we will be have we have been speaking the truth from the beginning, and we'll always be speaking the truth. Um, there was a formation and crop formation that formed in two thousand and two at a little place called Crabwood in the UK. And it consisted of an image of a gray, one of those with the big black eyes, and a disc beside it um, that proved to be uh, readable. It was ASCII code, and it was easily readable. Now, if you go on the internet, you'll see dozens of debunkings of this. They are all lies. And they are all generated, most of them, by the intelligence community itself, uh, which was desperate to keep this, keep a lid on this. The yeah. message was, beware the bearers of, of, uh, of, of, let's see, beware the bearers of false gifts and their broken promises. There is much pain, but still time. There is good out there. We oppose deception. Out there, not yeah. in here. Yeah. I don't think the defense industry is connected with the out there. I think it's connected with the bearers of false gifts and their broken promises. Yeah. And that yeah. is who we're going to be dealing with as this emerges. So you, so you think that crop circle was legitimate? By the way, I'll just mention, funnily enough, I, I, not that I have seen it before, but about an hour before we got on the, this call, I was just scrolling through uh, Reddit and I came across uh, that again and I saw that image and, and reread that thing that you just read and then like had a closer look at it. I was like, it's interesting, you know? And, and so it's just interesting well, that you just mention it now. That's the way the weave works. Yeah. And, 
that was intended to communicate to your viewers and listeners that there's something real there. And there, a lot of people are threatened by things like that, and they will immediately go to the lie that it's not that it was not real, and it's a lie, and it's an elaborate lie. If you look, there's plenty of debunking. It's all a lie, every word of it. Um, the truth is this: yeah. there is good out there, but not here, and we're going to have to deal with the defense industry the defense, the military, government, and the visitors. Remember that phrase, a new world if you can take it. It's going to be really hard, but we can take it. Yeah. We will prevail. Yeah. You can answer me this one in just literally a couple of words if you want. I just About Roswell. Good luck you with think... that. <laughs> I mean, it's on you. I, I don't mind if you take longer. It's just I, I, I want to let you get out here and get, get on with your day. Um, but in regards to Roswell, do you think we will get the truth on that from the government? And, and if yes, do you think it's, you know, in the next few years? Or when, would no, you I hazard think it, a guess? I think it's to going to come when? together. Ver- it's going to come together very quickly. You think um, so? Remember what the visitor said to me about these, these, these profound changes in the, in the, in the, in the, in the planet. They said it will come upon them unaware. That is to say, it will be far advanced before we realize that it's happening. Mm. And that's happening now. If you look at the news, you'll see that the North Atlantic has heated up unbelievably. And uh, that is completely unexpected. So, you know, we have all of this happening. It's happening now. And uh, whatever the answer, the direct answer to the question is, we're going to see this unfold very soon. And I, I don't think it's going to be a matter of years. I think it's immediate. I think it'll be, a, I think it's going to be very shortly. And as to the Roswell incident, General Arthur Exon told me years ago that there were bodies. Uh, he and my uncle worked on the debris. They were both officers at Wright Field at uh, the Air Materiel Command. Mm-hmm. Not from them, but from another source, which I don't know. I don't know the originator. I have some of that material right here in this office, which has been studied at Southwest Research in in Texas. And is very interesting. It's a mixed layers of bismuth and foamed magnesium. And if you look at it under a microscope, there's no there's just empty space between the layers. There's no mm. adherent. So why is it so hard and why does it stay together? We don't know. Yeah. And I'd like to get that more research done on it, but there's no way. I, I, I had some other material that I gave to, <laughs> to uh, work done on it at, at Southwest, and it was sent to a Navy lab that does work on this stuff and never given back to me. Yeah. So I'm very wary about giving any of this material, this little bit that I still have, to anyone, because they'll all go back to the defense industry or the defense department, and it'll it'll be hidden again. Yeah, it's understandable. So did you uh, kind of allude to the fact that you think disclosure is going to happen in the next few months, in in the next year? It's already happened. 
it's think, happening. It's yeah, happening right now. Right it's now the process is ongoing. Yeah. yeah. It's going, and there's going to be more. There will be yeah. much more. But not all of it, you don't think? You don't think they'll ever stand oh, up they'll and never, say... Well, well, even if they get amnesty? Do you think that would change if there was full amnesty given to, to all of these people that have no. crimi like acted criminally? The abductions will never be admitted, I don't think. If that happens, right. that'll be a really unexpected and wonderful. But And that's the core of it. Mm. Once that happens, then we begin to be able to talk about what happened to our sexual material and to talk about other things I'm not going to get into right now that yeah. need to be talked about very much, but only if there is an admission that this happened. Yeah. Look, Whitley, you've been so generous with your time today, especially when you're battling your allergies and everything like that. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm going to let you get going. But before I do, have you got any last words or a message you want to send to people that have watched and listened to this? Well, there are a lot of books out there that you could read, uh, mine included, Afterlife Revolution, the most recent one, Them, which uh, will give you a very clear idea of how to think about this th this relationship we have with this, this presence. Mm -hmm. And um, my website is unknowncountry.com, and I have a weekly podcast, Dreamland. And on every Thursday night at 8 o'clock, 7 o'clock Pacific time that I can do it, I do a live hour. And um, that's recorded also, so you can find it later. Great. Yeah. Well, I'll, I'll try and get all those links or as many of them as I can in the description below. So if anybody's interested in finding your books or your podcast or anything, your website, yeah, just scroll down and, and you should be able to find it there to click on it. Um, again, much appreciated and, and I wish you all my best. Thank you, Ben. Thank you to Whitley Strieber for talking with me and thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. Please see the description for relevant links and subscribe if you want to continue unraveling the universe with us. If you like our content and want to help us keep going, please consider a small monthly contribution via Patreon. Thank you.